For many of us, the new year brings an evaluation of our habits and a resolve to make changes in our daily lives. So I thought it would be appropriate to start our year off with a conversation focused on our habits of attention and how we as artists and creatives engage our digital world. I think you'll find this conversation timely and important as we enter into this new year and this new decade. So welcome to 2020, my friends, and thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is Season 6, Episode 12. One of the greatest virtues of both the Maker and the Mystic is the gift of attention. The ability to notice the world, to be curious towards life, and the mental capacity to create and innovate. And yet it's not a secret that we're alive in a day like no other, where screens dominate our focus and technology is forming us in ways we are mostly unaware of. In today's episode, we're going to interview one of the authors of the book, Faith for Exiles, David Kinnaman. David Kinnaman has authored several books, including Unchristian, You Lost Me, and Good Faith. He's the president of Barna Group, a leading research company based in Atlanta, Georgia. And for today's conversation, I've asked my good friend and story brand consultant, Luke Humbrick, to join me on the show. You may recall Luke from our season four episode on the missing link between faith and art, where Luke interviewed me about some of my motivations behind the podcast and why I've given my life to these discussions on faith and art. But today, we're gonna be discussing what David Kinnaman has coined as digital Babylon, and more specifically, we're gonna talk about how our screen-dominated culture affects our creativity, our spirituality, and the way we live our lives. So Luke, welcome back to Makers and Mystics. Hey, it's so good to be here. Good to be with you, Steven. Yeah, man, I'm excited to have you on the show again. Yes, it's been uh, far too long. Can't wait to, to jump into this interview. Before we get David on the line, I know that you read his book, Faith for Exiles, and I'd love for you to tell me some of why you think the ideas that David presents are important for this conversation. First of all, it's a fascinating book. Um, You mentioned that I'm a story brand guide, but I'm also a pastor in Boulder, Colorado. And so when I came across this book, it really struck me to put new language to the day that we're living in, I think in a way that few people have done it so far. And um, I think like you said, we live in a day where uh, one of the greatest things that we can offer the world is is our attention, both in things that we're creating, um, but the lives that we're living. And all of us know we, we've always had new technologies. The whole story of the human race has been one of you know advancing and progressing in the new technologies. But it has been interesting in the last decade. There seems to be an acceleration, not just with technology, but how it's actually shaping our lives. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we think of technology as this neutral thing, you know, my TV or my microwave or whatever, and it's just things that we use. But it's wild to think, for me, I, I was thinking about this the other day, it's wild to think I've only had my iPhone for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's totally changed the way I live my life, right? And so I, I even checked the other day and it's telling me that I pick up my phone about 75 times a day and that's maybe on a good day. And I, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to even say that out loud. Yeah. But I start to think about like, gosh, the moments of my day that normally would be, you know, waiting in line or I could actually notice something, moments that I could pause or to reflect, I've been trained to pick up my phone. And so, and I think that has tremendous implications on not only the creative life, but the spiritual life. 
And that's why I'm excited to talk to David and, and have him explore what he's been learning about this topic. Well, let's turn the conversation over to David Kinneman and let him tell us why this is an important conversation for us to have. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on Makers and Mystics today. I'm excited to talk about your book. Thanks for having me. I want to dive right into this idea that you talk about in your book. You refer to the day we live in as a digital Babylon, and uh, that's a fascinating phrase. Can you explain some of what that means? Yeah, well, maybe to describe it, uh, I'll just give a little bit of backstory that I was on a radio interview talking about a project I had done a few years ago called You Lost Me. And I was describing the spiritual journeys of this generation and how they're often feeling torn between how the real world really works and then the world of the church and their experiences within the church. And they felt, like I said, they felt like, you know, exiles. And then they're living in like a digital Babylon. I was describing, you know, sort of like Daniel's life in the page of the Old Testament. And uh, so it sort of stuck as a phrase for me and for others as we try to make sense of that. And it's really just a concept that, Every once in a while, you have these technologies or social forces that are great leveling forces, like the bulldozer comes through and it just changes everything. You know, it's like an era of disruption. It's a disintermediating force. And so in scripture, you see things like Babylon being power, prestige, pleasure, uh, sort of a, a new place in which these exiles have to work out their faith. And in our current Babylon, in our current digital Babylon, I'm reflecting on the fact that this is a great disruptor for the church and a healthy one, a good one at that. It, it is changing, I think, in good and meaningful ways, um, how the church relates to a, a bigger, broader world. So that's a quick description of what I mean by digital Babylon. So David, I'm a pastor at a church out here in Boulder, so I'm coming from more of a pastoral perspective. And this book is is definitely gripped both myself and several others on our team are now reading this book because I think you're putting language to something we've all felt, but has been hard to name for the last several years. And one of the propositions that you make pretty early on in the book is you reference how we're really the first generation of humans who haven't needed to rely on the earned wisdom and received tradition of previous generations. And instead, we're bringing these really important life questions to, uh, instead of bringing them to older, wiser adults, most of us or many of us are actually turning to friends and algorithms. And so I'm just curious, you know, with this proposition, what what's at stake when we rely more on Google than the elders and sages to teach us about life? Well, again, I think the first thing to say about all this is that technology is here for a reason. I mean, human beings have as part, part of our imago day in a certain way that we have a creative instinct, um, a tool making instinct that comes right from our being created in the image of God. Yeah. Um, and sometimes those are things that are designed to mitigate the effects of the fall, whether we're talking about medical technology, you know, so, sort of the idea that, you know, we're, we're creating tools that make it easier to, to farm and to build buildings and to communicate, um, and by the way, even the digital Babylon kind of goes back all the way to the Tower of Babel concept, right? So sometimes our tools are things that set us against the purposes of God because we're sort of will be like gods in creating our own structures and tools. So in some ways, I just want to make sure we say that 
there's a reason these tools are here and they're, they really benefit our lives in distinct ways. Right. And no one would really want to go back to a pre-digital age, even in the farthest reaches of the earth. You have people that are, have smartphones, but no working toilets. And, right. you know, and that defines the reality for many, many people. So technology is, is wonderful in when it works to make our lives better, more connected, uh, more focused on health and vitality, whatever, whatever it may be. I think that this idea of the earned wisdom of previous generations is faith in some ways is a series of talking about, for example, our belief in the authority of scripture. Yeah. For those of us who are Christians, we would say we have this, you know, belief that God has revealed himself through the pages of scripture and in the person of Jesus and in other things, even in the nature of in nature itself. And what's interesting about digital Babylon is that it's causing the transference of those principles of, of like why ancient truths might, might matter to us. It's speeding things up so quickly and providing access points for people to understand a different narrative that then undercuts maybe the authority of that story. And sometimes that's actually all to the good that, you know, when we realize that some of our stories might not be as true as we imagined or our sense, you know, do we have a flannel graph version of these Bible stories, you know, a paper thin version of these things. Right. But other times it may cause, you know, significant points of doubt or, you know, lead us to believe things like, you know, if you, if you Google Daniel, the prophet, I think the third sentence says, you know, most modern scholars believe that Daniel was just a, a fable written at 200 years after most more conservative biblical scholars believe he was actually alive. And so there's, you know, like, did he really exist? And, you know, can we count on the reliability of that story? Or was that just a fable meant to illustrate other principles? Right. And so not new that people would doubt the veracity of scripture, but you've got these access points that make it harder for you just to believe your parents about that. Digital Babylon gives you a, a sort of, it's like, okay, well, you know, all the old rules are thrown out. Now we like, do we trust Wikipedia about that? Right. So that's some of the things that are at stake. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so, as you're talking about these access points uh, that are that seem to be new um, in human history, one of the things that you point out is the amount of screen time, the amount of digital consumption that uh, young people are giving themselves to. You mentioned from 15 to 23 year olds about 2,700 hours, roughly, of screen time per year, and only maybe about. 10% of that is uh, spiritual content and probably even less for the non-church going people. And so I guess one of the questions that I have has to do with in this age that we're living in, Stephen had mentioned that for both the maker and the mystic, one of the gifts that we need to pay attention to the work of God and then pay attention to the creative life is the gift of attention. And so how does what we pay attention to in digital Babylon affect our ability to see, observe, and uh, notice the world we're living in? I think that's a huge and, and very insightful question. And one of the reasons for that is I think these tools, you, you know, another way to think about digital Babylon, or our smartphone era, is the fact that it's the closest thing to having the Holy Spirit in our pocket, right? It's our constant companion, our guide, our, our digital Sherpa, our counselor, our ever-present help in a time of, you know, missing information. Right. And so um, part of the reason that's important is that I think that it's made, you know, when I'm hanging out with young people, I'm 45, I've got three kids, 2018 and 15. So, you know, we have teenagers and young adults in our house all the time. And there's a sense in which as young adults are still maturing and all the rest, but they are very attuned to 
the words that are said, uh, how they're said. They're you know obviously with their with their smartphones in their pockets, they can find any information at the flick of a finger. And so I think that one of the conclusions we draw is that that this generation is waiting for an emotionally connected church for someone that looks beneath the surface that's paying attention to a nuance in more important ways and um, you know is attentive to those things. Like there's a reason why a lot of social research is showing higher and higher levels of anxiety and depression and mental health mm-hmm. issues with this generation because it's almost like they're tuning into you know a thousand conversations a day right. that are happening around them and like how can any one person bear up under the weight of all of that yeah. noise so you know i think that an attentive church an emotionally connected church is very very critical for authentic witness to this generation so walk us through in the book you really zero in on five core practices for this new day that we're living in uh, five practices that would help cultivate, create resilient disciples in digital Babylon. Could you briefly give us an overview of those five core practices? Sure, I'd be happy to describe those five practices. By way of background, um, what we did for the research was to look at individuals who are resilient in their faith. And we did social research. I'm I'm a bit of a maker myself in that we we do social research. I'm writing surveys, writing books. We We actually have a lot of design sensibility that's built into the book, uh, infographics, icons to try to communicate these complex uh, topics. But what we did was we tried to look at the most resilient young Christians in their faith um, and what made them resilient. And so we find these five factors that are are correlated with those that are the 10% of young people, 18 to 29, who are resilient in their faith. Hmm. And um, they, they have a, a conversational connection to Jesus is one of the, the key things. Like they really believe that Jesus is speaking to them is the first factor. Um, the second is um, a cultural discernment, a church that uh, teaches them how to live in the complex world. Uh, the second is a meaningful relationship. They actually like hanging out with other Christians and want to be like them. Uh, they want to emulate their lifestyle. They're inspired by their generosity, that kind of thing. Uh, the fourth is vocationally discipled. So they're, they're actually... Um, you know, kind of, uh, this is critical. Like we saw a lot of young artists, a lot of long creatives, a lot of entrepreneurs, science-minded individuals who are lost to the church, but but those that stay are vocationally disciple. They believe they have a purpose that God made them for something and they're, the church and church community helps them to, to interpret that. That's the fourth factor. And then the fifth factor is a countercultural mission. They live lives of sacrifice and purpose. Um, so those are the five factors. Is a you know really encouraging study. I've done a bunch of projects that have been pretty discouraging to do and to write. Um, a book called Unchristian and a book called You Lost Me. And so this book, Faith for Exiles, was really hopeful and a lot of fun to be able to look at these practices that I think make a real difference to the kind of uh, resilience of a young person's faith. I want to hone in on. The second practice in your book, uh, where you talk about that phrase, cultural discernment. And, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned anxiety and depression being on the rise in our generation. And it's interesting because a lot of the artists and a lot of the creatives uh, that I work with in our community, those are two things that have been very prevalent in the artist struggle, anxiety and depression. And so um, it's a real fascinating consideration is how the digital world that we live in may be contributing to some of that for the creative. 
But I want to point out one specific part in your book, and it's in the section where you're talking about Coaleth's discernment method. You zeroed in on the artist, and um, let me just read this quote from the book. You said, Every human creation declares something about how the world works, and identifying that worldview is an important part of cultural discernment. Whether we're dealing with great works of literature, the latest horror movie, or a James Bond film, the author has a worldview. James Bond movies portray one idea of masculinity, what is true or not true about that idea, what about Bond's notions of survival or good and evil. And then he went on to say, it's important to recognize how often art gets life right. Sometimes artists are more in touch with the human condition than many of us in ministry. The artist's claim about how life works is often what draws people to their art, and talking about the worldview underlying their creation is a great way to help young people understand their own claims about life. Tell me some about that. Absolutely. I think this notion that the church has left behind, I see it in three, sort of three categories, uh, it might be more, but at least three categories of talent, gifting, capability, and that is young science-minded uh, individuals, science, technology, engineering, math, uh, young entrepreneurs, builders, uh, marketers, people that are interested in understanding consumer behavior and, and how to build and develop organizations and teams, and then artists, artist designers, filmmakers, storytellers, many of the makers that would be listening in. And um, I think I, I just want to sort of say, just feel, feel like I should say this, that we've heard through our research many, many, many stories of young people who have been overlooked, underserved, misunderstood by the church. And if that's one of you, you should just know that God sees you and he made you. He understands that creative instinct to try to tell a true story to depict something in a true way. And um, I love that section you read. Thank you for reading it. My friend Mark was my co-author on the book and um, has worked with tens of thousands of, of young people, millennials, Gen Z. And it um, comes straight from his heart as, as someone who wants to you know, sort of mentor and develop this next generation of, of designers and creatives and makers. And um, I think the church has, you know, really misunderstood the role of art, not not historically, but in the last 25 years, and I think longer than that. I just don't have the data to prove it here at Barna. But I think the church misses uh, an important part of communicating into the heart of a design-oriented world. I mean, when you think about the TED Talks, you probably know this. TED is Technology Entertainment Design, and those are huge factors that define life in this connected age in this digital babylon technology entertainment design and the church has largely been if not silent um, sometimes really critical of people in those industries or of what the effects of those industries might have on people instead of embracing them as part of our god-given calling to steward and to be part of the creative process um, a good friend of mine uh, was the lead designer of pnc ballpark in pittsburgh and um, he said that there were some verses in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 34, 35, 36, where it talks about uh, another biblical name I can't pronounce, but I think it's Oheliab and the way that the Spirit of God had given them the ability to craft gems and work with natural materials and metals and wood and to create the tabernacle. And that, that finding those verses and, and how it described God's creative intent for those human beings with the work of their hands, the, the you know, sort of the original makers, 
And uh, he said that that saved his faith, that, that, that seeing those sections of scripture were life-giving to him as, a, as an aspiring architect. And so the implication for that is we should teach uh, that section of scripture from pulpits um, because it is partly the point. Like uh, we have makers, creatives, designers, science students, technology uh, leaders, business leaders in our churches, in our communities. And my aspiration would be this research inspires church leaders and people, lay people in their, in their communities to reflect a more whole gospel about why God makes us, um, obviously for intimacy with him and, you know, and salvation, eternal life, but also for, for life on this world to live that out in consonance with our giftings. And that could be, you know, in, in the case of creatives and artists telling a true and beautiful story. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating because that same passage that you're referring to is also the first time in scripture that anyone is named as having been filled with the spirit of God. And it was the artist, Bezalel. I think that's such a cool thing that is, uh, again, often overlooked. I just think that these pages of scripture, they burst with uh, stories of people who are, you know, trying to live these tensions out, whether it's a, a, an artist, a craftsman, um, like that section of Exodus 35, um, or, you know, in the case of Daniel, um, you know, this guy who's, you know, we, we often hear about him in, in our church circles, Dan, you know, Daniel the prophet, um, uh, as, you know, someone who's just a kind of a, a culture warrior. But, you know, the, his ability to, like, learn the pagan arts and the language and literature of Babylon and, you know, to remain steadfast and faithful to his calling as a political, you know, like, what, what a great political science leader he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, great statesman and, and diplomat. Um, you know, we we miss the gritty reality of the lives these these men and women would have led. Um, and and so, yeah, I think that's just one of the coolest parts of studying scripture is to see how those relate not just to ministry, like overtly ministry careers, but to all of life. And vocation is such a huge theme for us. That and it's one of the themes of these resilient disciples that they actually feel like the church says something meaningful to who they are and who they've been created to be to their to the very work of their hands. As we're talking about the Bible and uh, the Psalms and the art in Scripture, uh, we see, like you said, David, that there's this gritty reality. They're not afraid to deal with the hard things, the hard topics, um, the amount of Psalms that are given to lament and to crying out for God. It really gives language to you know the, the reality of life, the doubts, the crises, um, the things that we walk through that we don't have neat answers to. And I think that's that really is one of the roles of artists today is to nuance an imagination for you know how we might experience life. And uh, now you touch on this a little bit in the book, but the importance of Christian communities that can actually uh, have the ability to wrestle with doubt. It's even more sobering to think about the, the amount of young people that are disconnecting from faith communities because they don't feel like what they know of their, uh, you know, their upbringing, their church life has the capacity to handle questions of doubt. How would you encourage churches today as they're, they're trying to find ways to create those resilient disciples as far as making way for vulnerability and the deeper questions of life. Well, one of the really cool things we saw in the data was the resilience of these young Christians uh, when it came to their relationships within the church. And a lot of that, as you as you said, was that they're actually open and honest about their questions and about their doubts. And we saw this throughout, I've seen this now for you know more than 10 years of research, that doubt and expressing your doubt, talking about your questions is not a 
faith deterrent. It's actually a faith propellant. Wow. Uh, you know, we found for one in four pastors say they have significantly struggled with their faith while they've been in ministry. And uh, those that have, have done so um, are often stronger for it. And the congregations that they lead are actually stronger for it. I, I, I sort of, sometimes I'm like, I joke like, you know, what well, we now know that three out of four pastors have just lied to us because, you know, I just feel like it's so common, common to know uh, that, that they, would have, they would have experienced some sort of honest questioning about the metaphysical right. reality of God who can hear 8 billion prayers. And if you don't wrestle through that, how can you really talk to people who are not believers yet or who are struggling in their faith or who are even strong in their faith? Like doubting this, we see it in scripture that God is just fine with questions about who he is, what he means, and, you know, like, like throughout. And, and, and at, some, at some level then, it's a fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So all that to say, one of the really cool findings in the study was that these resilient disciples, the 10% who made these commitments and who are sort of leaning in uh, on their faith, they have this beautiful picture of resilient relationships there's a sense in which their faith is really making them better, wholer people. And we had a whole series of questions that were not related to like churchy things. So, you know, sometimes we're looking at, you know, how much do you go to church or how much do you pray? Or, you know, whenever we ask spiritual questions and you have a, we, you know, we created these different categories. So the more Christian you are, the more resiliently Christian you are, the more likely you're going to show up as you know, praying, you know, sharing your faith, all those things that you sort of expect to happen. But we, we found this really counterintuitive, well, it was, it was a, not counterintuitive, but it was a super neat finding um, that we had this whole se- section of questions that were not spiritual at all. So I have at least one close friend I can trust with my secrets, like my doubts. I, when growing up, I had close personal friends who were adult. I have someone in my life other than family who I can go to for advice on personal issues. My friends help me to be a better person. I have friends and family who are honest with me about my weaknesses. I'm very content when I'm by myself. I wish I had more close friendships, which is, you know, its own sort of resilience, right? Like you like you may have a lot already, but you actually feel like you might you'd like more. And what was fascinating was um, that was the only set of questions where we didn't see this sort of stair step you know, result. So so usually we saw like ex-Christians were the lowest on the spiritual questions and then nomads were second lowest and then habitual churchgoers were third lowest and then these resilient disciples were highest. And on that section of questions I just read you, they are, resilience are, are far and away higher on all of those things to report positive associations with their relationships and everybody else about the same. So the generation is struggling in its own way with isolation and loneliness and mental health issues. And it's not to say that there are none of those things within resilient disciples. It's just, they show a very different profile of really positive, positive profile about the quality, consistency, reliability of their friendships and relationships with, and those aren't always even just church relationships, but that was a really fun. And I think encouraging finding that following Jesus pursuing a, a certain sort of resilience and faith can actually provide a richer network of relationships. That's great. In the chapter vocational discipleship, you talk about resilient disciples there, and you made the statement that vocational discipleship means knowing and living God's calling, understanding what we are made to do, especially in the arena of work, of right-sizing our ambitions to God's purpose. And you said something that I found really fascinating there, 
and you were talking about, I, I think it's a friend of yours, Sky Jathani, is that right? Yeah. Who has written a lot about vocation, says that he believes God designed work for three primary reasons, to create beauty, to cultivate abundance, and to generate order. I love that because that coincides directly with the creative calling. And you said, this is one way to envision how God has wired human to create beauty, creative careers, to cultivate abundance, entrepreneurial careers, or to generate order. Shouldn't we as the church be the first in line to mentor young people as they walk into these kinds of God-ordained callings? And that really struck me because I've often asked the question, what if the church became the creative arts center of the world? What if the church was known for embracing creativity because it reflects the nature of the God that we love? So I'd love to hear you elaborate on our work being designed to create beauty, to cultivate abundance and generate order. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm so glad that you found those pages in the book and um, they're actually an undiscovered area that the church can uh, really lean in on. And um, so, yeah, my friend Sky has this whole proposition that in the book of Genesis, uh, we see that God creates and ordains human beings to work and that, uh, you know, work eventually becomes cursed. That's where thistles and thorns and the sweat of our brow, where all that emerges. I actually think that, you know, the office television program, it's like a epitomization of the modern examples of how work is cursed, right? Like the dysfunction yeah. <laughs> in the workplace uh, is just so funny. And um, uh, and it's true enough, right? Like like there are a lot of days I'm that doofus boss, you know, around the office that, you know, <laughs> tries to challenge the warehouse workers to a game of basketball or you know, steps in to tell the trainer how to really do the race training. So, you know, and art, by the way, that's, that's what art can do, right? It can point out the dysfunctions that are common and why, why work is broken and why it needs redeeming and all the rest. So my friend Sky has this proposition, this great thesis that, you know, in, in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time, God ordains human beings to be like him in their ability to produce and create. And he specifies that there are at least three purposes for work that before things go awry, that it's to produce abundance, you know, to cultivate the garden and to produce abundance. So there's more than enough. Um, that is the calling of an entrepreneur. And a good entrepreneur is one that produces more than enough profit to pay his or her people um, and to pay, you know, his or her vendors and then to make our communities better. Uh, so the God ordained purpose of entrepreneurship of profit is an abundance making goal an objective. Uh, the second thing he says is that there is a cultivation of order. Uh, and you can see this in the naming of the animals of the sort of the, you know, the very first stratification of, of animals of, you know, sort of like the classification of birds of the air and trees of the field. Uh, and then, and then to, uh, to cultivate beauty is the third reason that God designs work. And, and, you know, that's that cultivation of the garden of, of the, uh, the tending of um, of God's original good work and God's good garden. And so I think that when we do that, and by the way, there's a whole interesting argument I think we can make, you know, so I mean, I've been a lifelong Christian. I know, I know a lot of your listeners will be Christians in their own place of spiritual journeys. But, you know, for me as a lifelong Christian, I always grew up in this environment where it was like, you know, God, you are, you are a sinner, you know, you are broken, you need Jesus. And that's a, tr you know, for me as a Christian, that's a true enough, you know, the essential truth of the gospel, but without a, tr a real understanding of where it all began, that we're created in the image of God, 
and that ultimately God is restoring all things you know, at the end of time and, and th- through our work in the world, we can be restorers along with God's purposes. And so in a similar way, I actually think that if we're always told that work sucks, that, you know, to take this job and shove it, that, you know, you're ultimately, you know, your best thing is to be like Jim Halperin in the office where, you know, you just try to endure every day and throw spit wads at your uh, insane coworkers. <laughs> like if that's your highest use of work, then you didn't realize, you know, that God actually has a purpose behind all of work and the industries of the world, but also he has uh, a calling for each of us individually within those industries to push back the darkness, to make the world a better place around those three things, beauty, abundance, and order. Mm-hmm. You know, you start to see some really cool things. Like, you know, so, so teachers, um, law enforcement professionals, farmers, um, you know, like some of us have a kind of an overlapping job. I'm, I'm both an entrepreneur um, and I'm a bit of a science geek, right? Um, they're part of my work. I'm, I'm also really interested in design and, you know, creative communications. Um, so it's not, maybe not always like super neat little buckets, but I think when we began to see our work as, you know, how do we cultivate more and purer forms of beauty, abundance and order? You know, my wife went through a brain cancer thing two, three years ago, just horrible. And, you know, you want your oncologist mm-hmm. to be a person of order, to put things back to right, to right. know that. Mm-hmm. the classification of different tumor cells and treatment options. And, you know, I just think that, I think I think just credit Sky with how uh, such a great framework of beginning to see work in a way that we're trying to do some things that were originally intended for us to do at the beginning of time by, you know, by a creative God who, who wanted us to partner with him in work. And now we try to make work a redeeming part of our, our lives. So um, I think that's just a Christian and, and human way of understanding work today. I want to bring the conversation back around full circle and and we started you know talking about digital babylon and and talking about what is essentially our relationship to technology and and you said in the beginning of the interview David how technology really is a creative gift or it's meant to be received as a creative gift something that offers wonderful things to our lives and so essentially what we're talking about is the importance of developing a proper relationship to technology and you know bringing this specifically to the creative community to the artists that are following the podcast and to the entrepreneurs that listen I know a lot of these artists and entrepreneurs utilize technology and utilize social media for their businesses and for connecting with an audience I wonder if you would have any closing thoughts or any recommended practices that we could even implement. How can we develop a healthy relationship with technology and in discipleship and cultivate a healthy spirituality in an age that is so dominated by screens and by things grabbing for our attention? Well, I think the very nature of the question is the thing we should be asking ourselves on a a regular basis to review our digital habits Cal Newport has done some great books, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism. I mean, I know for me as an author that it's much harder, it has been much harder for me to write books the last couple of years than it was, you know, 10, 12 years ago, simply because of the distraction of social media and and email, which says something about, you know, how hard it is for all of us to do the kind of deep work that's necessary. So those are books to, that I would recommend. Uh, Barna Group partnered with Andy Crouch to do a book called The TechWise Family. Uh, and that's, a, I think, a great book that gives you some very practical ways of thinking about technology within your household. 
I think for any of us uh, as leaders, you know, there's a certain sense of almost accountability, mutual accountability we ought to have to one another about the way we use technology in our business here at Barna. We have um, mostly a set of rules, a little rule of life about how we think about technology, you know, that email is used for certain kinds of communication, that we don't text each other, you know, after hours, unless there's a real urgent, you know, like emergency that has to be addressed you know, uh, we, we, we use Slack in certain ways. So we've tried to create a, a bit of a hierarchy uh, and a, almost like a, a communications plan around how the tools are used. And then to, to evaluate and reevaluate that on a regular basis. I mean, Andy Crouch talks about these rhythms, you know, take um, at least an hour off every day from technology to, to put your phone to bed before you go to bed. Don't wake up with your phone sort of thing. Um, he says, take a day, a, an hour off a day, a, a day off a week, and a week off a year uh, where you go screen free, uh, sort of a sabbatical rhythm. So, just you know, I'm learning a lot of that. I try to practice as much of that as as I as I can, um, and um, and those things make a big difference. Um, and I think then, as mm-hmm. if, if you're running a business or you're using technology. Simply because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And again, I think I, I mean, as a as a leader of a small tribe of of uh, researchers and designers and writers, we've got about uh, you know twenty people or so that work for Barna. You know, and I, I'm, I'm the president of the company, and so I'm, I'm I'm realizing it's always easy for me to text or email or call or Slack somebody. But you know, like how does that then change? the emotion like like you get a text or an email from me on the weekend so i've had to tell people who work for us like okay emails you know when we're business hours you need to respond within 24 hours but when we're on the weekends like sometimes i'm just trying to get through my stack of emails um over the weekend and so you know you don't you're not obligated to be reading my emails over the weekend like you know so being clear about expectations uh making sure those are very focused on our flourishing so those are some of the things that I've been learning about having a healthy relationship with technology and devices, whether that's in my home or in our business. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on Makers and Mystics. Of course, my pleasure, guys. It's good stuff. I mean, the reason why what you guys are doing is important and why these themes are so important is, you know, I don't know, I've done 25, 30 podcasts so far in the last couple of weeks, interviews on the book and things and like, you know, People are like, oh yeah, vocational stuff. Like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. And you know, like, but tell us about the Jesus thing more. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I feel like sometimes to a hammer, everything is a nail. And for people right. that are in, in church work, rightly so, they're like, man, we're here for Jesus, and that's all good. But we've inoculated a generation to what Jesus really does and says and means about our, of course, our soul. But then, what if that's all evaporates? Or like Jesus says, you know, these these seeds are just thrown onto rocky or, or sort of infertile soil. Yeah. I did a um, chapel last Monday with a group in Ozark Christian College, and I asked the you know, students, about, six, about 500 or so students, how many of you know anyone who walked away from their faith, you know, that you grew up with, and all the hands, almost all the hands go up. Yeah. And I was like, do you, th- do you think that people walk away because they just didn't really ever get enough messages about Jesus or the clarity of the gospel presented? Or do you think that, and maybe that's some of the case, but what if they also were not really mentored, developed, vocationally developed into what God had called them to do in their work lives? And so consequently, Christianity always felt like it was about, you know, making good churchgoers and Christian converts and not about, you know, the kind of 
Christians who are are integrators of their faith into every aspect of their life. So Jesus only matters on Sunday morning, not on the Monday through Friday right. you know, set up. So, you know, like you could tell the gears were spinning in the students' minds. It was a rhetorical question, but I think it's it's the question all of us need to be asking. Yeah. About what are the real levers that are gonna make, you know, our make our own faith, our own kids' faith? Like what are the things that are gonna really help us to to grow, so I'm I'm very happy to do this interview and and, and love the questions you guys ask because it, it's the kind of things that we ought to be paying even closer attention to within our churches. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and visit our website at makersandmystics.com to explore a library of over 100 episodes on art, faith, and culture.